Welcome to the Rock and Roll Survivors Podcast, dedicated to those in front of the curtain, behind the curtain, and somewhere in between. I'm Kristen, and on season one, the legendary rock star Patty Quattro joins us to discuss her time with the band Fanny, the fabulous feedback from the international press, David Bowie's contributions to the fifth and final Fanny album, and so much more. So let's get started. Patty Helen Quattro, welcome to the first ever Rock and Roll Survivors podcast. You told me that you've never been called Patricia, even though that's your real name. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I just for the listeners, this is going to be so much fun, I think, because you and I have known each other since I was six years old when you moved to the house, my dad's house. And this conversation was sparked a couple of years ago. We began this when the Fanny documentary, Fanny, the Right to Rock, came out. And it definitely had a certain angle to it, it you know, a storyline. Yes. But so many things missing with your past and your history. I feel Nikki Barkley was missing a lot. And so I wanted to get your story down and start hearing about you. We're going to start with you. We're going to start with Fanny. And then we're going to go back in time talking about your incredible family, the legacy that you have, your Detroit roots and rock star legacy there. So let's just kind of set the stage for everybody. You joined Fanny in the end of 1973. Am I getting that correct? Yes. Yes, you are. And so that was after the last album on Warner Brothers Reprise had already gone. And so tell us about how you we're going to get to the longer story of how you got to Fanny, but when you joined Fanny, was the Warner Brothers reprise contract over? I believe it was over. They were pretty disenchanted. June was uh, having her issues with staying in the band because they were going all glam and she didn't like that. And I, I had a whole different philosophy for me. You go out there and dress the way you want to, whatever it is. If you want to be sexy, if you want to dress down, T-shirts and Levi's, whatever you want, be genuine. That was the difference. But June wasn't having it. She wanted to leave. It just got very old. And they hadn't broken through completely like they wished. So it was tough. And we played with them. I was in my brother's band. And we were doing tours, and he had gotten quite a name for himself, and that was the Mike Quattro Jam Band. I got to play flute, bass, and guitar. And it was a complete departure for me, because I'd never played flute. Well, I had played flute, but I hadn't played bass. But um, I loved it, because it rounded me out. And my brother was such a keyboard genius that it was amazing to venture into this classical rock arena. So we were touring and we did a gig with Fanny. And I believe it was in Missouri or Kansas. And we were the headliner, they were the starting band. And of course I knew about them because we had alternate stories, me in Detroit Rock City and them in the Spelts and all that. So it was interesting for me to hear them live. And of course I still had my dream of breaking through a female band because it hadn't happened even for them. And so then I got a call from June or your dad, I can't remember who, but they wanted to do a tryout because she wanted to leave. And somehow we had a tryout and I don't remember where, but we did one and they decided to 
offer me. And I think your dad did that, that final call, or Gene. And so I came in the same time as Bree did. And it was a very hard decision for me because my brother's album, the one I helped co-produce, was out. And we were touring. And he was heartbroken. I was a, It was a three-piece band. And, you know, I was an integral part of it. It was drums and him playing double keyboards backwards that's he was a keyboard genius and all these buttons and stuff on the wall he had a whole wall of stuff Aerosmith didn't even want to go on after him I love I didn't want to go on it's in their book you know this guy came on this classical genius and it was so funny so he was pretty upset and I had to explain to him I really want to do this and so I did leave and it was hard because he's family and I went out there and we we started and Brie came in at the same time. So wait, I, I want to go back a little bit more. Sorry, I have so many go questions. Ahead. Go we ahead. Are absolutely going to get to your brother at some point. But I want to take this back a little bit. So sure. name of your the, the band with your brother, you're in wherever it is, and Fanny opens up for you. Did they know about the Pleasure Seekers, which was your first? That's one of the first female bands. To be signed. Oh, yeah. We were the earliest with Genya. I mean, we were the ones. Yeah. Then came Fanny. Um, I don't know if they knew about us. I mean, I don't know how they couldn't. We had internet, but not as much as it is now. I'm not sure whether they completely knew about us. We're way over in Detroit and they were in LA. So I don't know. Interesting. Okay. So then, so let's say it's my dad. Your man, your future manager, Roy Silver, calls you, or you get the offer. H- how did you wrestle with that? I mean, that's a big decision to leave your brother. And I, I recently learned that you co-produced that album, so that yes. must have been a difficult decision to part ways. Was it solely gender based? It was for me. I mean, Susie had already gone off to England, which landed me with my brother. And all of those separations were very difficult. We had such a tight family unit, which we'll get into as we talk. And we were schooled in music. My dad had a passion. So yes, it was incredibly difficult for me to tell him, I'm going to go and play with another girl band because I think I can help them and we can get somewhere with it. And they hadn't been able to, you know, it was different in those days. But obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but obviously my dad and the surviving members of it, if you will, Gene and Nikki, were were adamant enough to want to keep going with Fanny. Oh, yeah, that's a whole story. It's interesting how different the stories are told from different perceptions. And I got to say, I try to stay in the light and just be factual. You know, I've done a lot of interviews on it. There was a lot of bad feeling going on, and there was a lot of history between the original four, which we'll get into. And I had heard all the stories. There was a lot of disagreement and all that on direction and what, you know, genre to play in. But I'm a hard rocker from Detroit. So they were excited, Nikki and Jean. And it's all in the press that we had from that time. They were so excited to venture into a harder edge direction because Nikki wanted to the hard rock. That was her, she was so talented and she wrote and she didn't want to do all the soft stuff as much. I mean, not that she didn't write in that vein. She certainly did, but she was very excited to try a new direction. 
and a heavier one. And so was Jean. They did not want to stop. They didn't want June leaving to stop the progress of Fanny. And Jean was with your dad. So, I mean, they had their connection. And Alice did not want to continue without June. And years, you know, when you're young, your ego takes over a bit. We were all young girls. Alice was very pissed that June left. And she did not want to play with me. She wanted to play with June. That was her guitarist. And she couldn't confront June. It was too painful. So she left too. And, you know, went to work as A&R. I forget with who, Capital or A&M. A&M, yes. And she was responsible for helping out other girl groups, but she was done. That was it. So I had a lot of shade thrown at me instead of her not being able to confront June. And that was what where the history got wrong, because she said a lot of stuff, which she later, with wisdom, apologized for. You know, we, we're friends now, but then it hurt because there was a lot of shade slamming me as the new one. And she didn't do it as much to Brie, but I had replaced her guitarist. So, you know, not too happy about it. So that's how it came down. But, you know, we started right in with uh, Brie and uh, Nikki and And Jean. Do you remember, you and I are going to get to one of, well, we're going to get to all of your songs on the Rock and Roll Survivors Fanny album. But do you remember what songs you auditioned with? I'm putting that in air quotes for. Oh, wow. I don't even remember auditioning. Oh. I, I remember just coming to L.A. and joining, but June insists we had an audition, and I don't know where it was or what. I mean, it just flew out of my mind with the years. But, no, I don't remember what we auditioned on, something that we all knew, I guess. Well, the only reason why I wanted to know, and, again, we're going to talk about your songs, is one of my favorite songs ever, not just because it's you, but ever, is Rockin' All Night Long, which, again, oh. we'll talk about later. But you had said that you – Brought that from Cradle? Am Cradle. I getting that correct? Yeah. So yep. I'm wondering if that was one of your songs that you auditioned with. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. That was one of them I brought to them. I brought a few things from Cradle to the Fanny Girls, and we used them in the opera in different places because we were pretty advanced in Cradle. We were starting to write, and we had a rock opera and costuming before Kiss ever thought of it. And... Uh, so we were experimenting with a lot of different types of things. So that was new for Jean and Nikki because they were used to doing the, the Fanny legacy type songs, what they wrote. So it was a little different bent to it, you know? Well, and again, we are going to get to all of this. I mean, this is why you are going to be season one of this podcast because there is so much to talk about. But so now you've been invited to Fanny. You say very painfully goodbye to your brother. And you make this trek out from Detroit to L.A. And you move in to the house that we call it the Doheny House, which was actually kind of on par to Fanny Hill, only a couple miles apart. You move into what we call the guest house, which had a separate entrance and it was just too cool. So it was great. Tell me how how did that work out that you even came to live at the house? 
Well, there was no place else to put me, I think, to save money and all that. Your dad offered. He had the apartment. And it was the most convenient thing since Bree already had a house and Nikki and Jean were already there. They just stuck me in that apartment. And it was great. We had a connecting door and you were in there all the time. We did (laughs) dancing. We did music. We went up in the loft. It was a perfect little apartment for me to land in and feel safe when I was changing my whole life coming out to L.A. Very different I, I, environment. I bet. <laughs> I bet. Oh, yeah. And and for me, you have to know, as a child, when you moved in, we did have so much fun. But you are responsible for being the first person ever to teach me what a urban myth is. And I don't know if you remember, we would sit in your apartment and you would hold a flashlight under your chin so that it would have the scary look to it. And the only one I, I vividly remember was you were the one that told me the story about when you a woman went to go pump gas in her car and she didn't check the back seat and someone got in the back seat when she was driving off and then he murdered her. And I remember just, I think to this day, I still check the back seat because of you. So. Oh my God. Well, good. I gave you something. <laughs> it gave me so much. It was wonderful. So tell me a little bit about what it was like living at the house. I mean, th- those were wild days. It's 1973 turning 1974. Yeah. It was great. It was so different than what I grew up in. I mean, I'm a, you know, four girls in my family, one boy, Catholic, you know, we didn't have any uh, sunbathing topless and all that stuff. I mean, we didn't do any of that in Detroit. You know, we were just hard rocking people trying to stay out of the car factories. And that was the impetus for the Detroit bands. They didn't want to go like their dad to the car factory. I mean, there was even a paper written on it, you know, where the what's in the water in Detroit, this legacy. So it was like a complete turnaround of environment for me to be in free and loose L.A. And it didn't bother me. I rolled with it, but it was different. I didn't go topless, but everybody around us did, you know, and um I just did my thing, and uh, I remember I, I thinking you fried bologna. You absolutely. You <laughs> were the first person ever to teach me fried bologna and to eat it, and I loved it. And I remember the saying to dad, <laughs> how come you don't make that for me? Well, and the other image I have is your incredibly gorgeous, long-legged body lounging oh. by the pool with what we used to have in the 70s, those reflector, whatever mm-hmm. they're called, those cards, so that more sun would get on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Yes. Do you know your dad did that? When I came in, he decided that I would be like the famous model that was popular then. He called me Verushka. Uh, that was the model. And because of my long legs, I mean, they're always written about in the press. I mean, this is what, you know, press people do. But it was him that started that because he was telling everybody, oh, we've got this girl. She's like Verushka. And, you know, he wanted me to pose certain ways and on the album cover to show off the legs. He was that was his little nickname for me and how he saw me in the band. That's amazing. That I did not know. Oh, yeah. That was all boy. (laughs) I love that. I love that. The other thing I want you to talk about is my dad's cooking. He was very famous Mm. for cooking. He would create these incredible meals, mostly Chinese, which he was self-taught. And so if you came up to the house, there would be any kind of celebrity there at the time, multiple, you know, women sunbathing. I was usually in the pool all the time. My dad would be cooking and there would be others in the kitchen. And 
that's how he ended up coming up with the idea of Roy's the restaurant. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that memory. Being at your dad's house, I never ate so good except at my own mother's cooking, but he was such a good cook. I remember the uh, big, uh, those rolls, the Chinese rolls, dims, what do they call them? Dim sum or something? With the pork inside. He oh. had, we had Ryan O'Neill, Joan Collins, uh, Bill Cosby in his younger day before his troubles. Um, your dad was a mover and shaker, man. He was, he was him and Bud Prager and Artie Mogul, man, the mover, the, the three from New York City. And they took LA by storm and they were responsible for so much success of name artists. They had such a legacy between the three of them. And Bud was my manager. And and your and then your dad was my manager. So, you know, it's a little close circle. And he cooked all the time. They would have people over and we would just eat. Oh, great food. And Chinese and Mr. Chow's. And Mr. Chow's. They would always have cooking contests. Oh, <laughs> you couldn't have eaten better. It was great. It's so much fun. It was so delicious. I still miss his food so much. Yeah. For those who don't know who Bud Prager is, can you talk a little bit more about who he was? Bud Prager, New Yorker, he handled Mountain and uh, Peter Frampton. And I'm, I'm trying to think quick who else he did. Mountain, uh, Foreigner, Megadeth, Bad Company, Wes Bruce and Lang, Typo Negative, he, he had a big management agency in New York, and he managed my beginning bands, uh, Cradle. He, he was managing Cradle. So when I went to Fanny, he still managed, and he handled my music and all that, which I've since gotten back into my control because he passed on. But he had a lot of faith in us, and mostly because Leslie West who was one of my mentors, which I have one of his his custom guitars that he gave me, he loved us. They We were on a lot of bills with them. And he told Bud, oh, my, these girls are something. They play better than most of the guys we play with. And that was his feeling about Cradle. And so he was a big, he pushed us. And Bud managed us. So Bud, you know, being with Roy, when he heard I was going to connect with Fanny, well, you know, it was just a natural evolution. I mean, the three, Artie and him and your dad, <laughs> the three musketeers. I have a very awful story about Bud Prager, where after my dad and Bud had a, had a huge falling out, huge falling out. And I was this young whippersnapper, had just been signed to Warner Brothers Publishing as a singer and a songwriter. I was 15. And my dad said, you should send Bud your demo tape. And so I did, not knowing that they had had a falling out. My dad didn't tell me that. And oh, Bud sent me the most brutal, scathing, hit-below-the-belt rejection letter. Oh, God. I told my dad this. And my dad, it was one of the few times my dad took responsibility and, and apologized to me. And he said, that was not about you at all. That was all me. That was his way of getting back at me, meaning my dad. Oh, man. That's my memory of Bud Prager because he was a New York guy. So I don't think I ever really met him. But Artie Mogul was in L.A. So for those who don't know, tell us a little bit who Artie Mogul was. Oh, my God. Well, Artie Mogul was a record exec. He was he worked A&R. He helped sign and discover Laura Nero, Cosby, Olivia Newton-John, Wilson Phillips, 
Hootie and the Blowfish. I mean, he had quite a career. He worked with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Kenny Rogers, uh, Deep Purple, ELO. He has quite a legacy. He, he was a mover and shaker in L.A., very involved. And your dad, oh, my gosh, your dad, Bill Cosby, Deep Purple, Carol Wayne, Tiny Tim, um, Cass Elliott. I mean, he had his own legacy with his management company. And they were all so successful. You know, that's they, they really were movers and shakers. They were. And, uh, and it's funny. Every I, one of them. I didn't realize um, that Artie Mogul, excuse me. I didn't realize that Artie Mogul was responsible for Wilson Phillips because here's another twist. Owen Elliott, who is the daughter of Cass Elliott, she and I grew up together. Owen and I grew up together and I knew Cass very, I loved her so much. When Owen started wanting to be a singer, she has very much her mother's voice. Very similar. Let me say it that way. We're very recognizable. And so my Uh dad took her, Owen, under his wing. This was later to start managing her. And my dad set her up to meet Artie Mogul and Artie Mogul stole Owen away from my dad and started managing her. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So these are fun times. You know what? They were funny. I mean, they were best friends, but they were also competitive. Exactly. That's, that's showbiz. That is showbiz. That's very, very, very true. That's the slimy edge of it. I mean, they're super, it can get super competitive and nasty. Yes, absolutely. So, okay. You're at the house. You're now in Fanny. Do you remember where Fanny rehearsed? It was no longer at Fanny Hill, obviously. No, no. Um, <laughs> we rehearsed in your dad's, what, was it the garage? Um, mm-hmm. the, the room in between the apartment and your My, bedroom, was it, yep. it went into? Yeah. So we rehearsed there. And then your dad uh, contracted to get us a, a building like an office building, he rented a space or something, and we rehearsed there afterwards. We had to get ready. We had a New Year's Eve gig, the first one. Oh. Where, where uh, that was on, uh, not New Year's Eve, wait, was it Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve, I think. And uh, John Lennon came to see our first gig. He That was the time he had the Kotex on his head. with the uh-huh. And we performed Oh Darling for him, which was one of our songs. We did um, we did all the Fanny repertoire because at that point I learned all the Fanny songs, and we did um, "Ain't That Peculiar." I had to learn slide guitar real quick, and I didn't find it hard at all. It it was natural for me being a lead guitarist, but it was fun to learn that. And we did the, their whole repertoire, and uh, it it was a great first gig. Do you remember where the gig was? Whiskey. Oh, was it the whiskey? Whiskey a go-go. I have the tape. Oh, I want to hear it. We're going to be sharing that with the listeners, <laughs> hopefully. The whole thing, yeah. We'll be listening so, to it. So we rehearsed in the garage and until we moved to that uh, building. I don't know why we moved, but we did. And uh, just started honing into our songs and stuff and adding new stuff in. You know, I brought my songs in and it just started gelling. You know, it takes a long time to gel a band. Oh, absolutely. We were together for one year, and we had two records charted, and one of them was the highest charted record Fanny ever got blessed with. Band in Boston, but it was way up on the charts. 
go figure. You know, who knows what would have happened if we had continued on, you know, one year. And we one got that. Year. Well, and just for those who don't know, the song that you're referring to is Butter Boy, Gene's song, Butter Boy. Again, we'll be talking about this more. But so it's at the Whiskey and you have your opening gig. I can't believe you were only together for a year. But the other thing that I was new to me, because I have a lot of memories of Fanny, even before you joined. But I there's a very big split for me between the first four albums, clearly, and the fifth Fanny album, because I don't have any memories of the you with the new in- incarnation doing any of the old songs. Wow. I, I don't know why. So it was real. I would love to hear, you know, Ain't That Peculiar and you did Blind Alley. I would love to hear that. We didn't do Blind Alley, oddly. Oh. We didn't do that. And I was surprised because that was, you know, the old, the four originals. I have a lot of respect for what they did in the four albums, but it wasn't my cup of tea to do all the soft stuff. I'm a hard rocker. I make no excuses for it. Uh, I laugh with Alice about it all the time. I'm a hard rocker. I want the upbeat, good stuff. If it's going to be a slow song, I want to hear a voice that takes me on a trip, a journey, like a Joe Cocker, okay? Mm -hmm. And if I just hear an ordinary rock voice just singing a ballad, Nope, leave it out. You know, it doesn't get me going. It doesn't get my juices flowing. I'm just another person that has her likes and dislikes. Mm-hmm. So we didn't do a lot of the Fanny repertoire. We moved on to new stuff. We did Ain't That Peculiar. We did Charity Ball. We did Oh Darling. We did You're the One. You know, we did quite a few of them. And the ones I liked, you know, I was happy to do. I love You're the One. It has this sexy feel to it, you know, certain ones. But I don't know why we didn't do Blind Alley or Bash, but we didn't. Did you do Seven Roads? Huh? Did you do Seven Roads? No. I would love we to. We are their best you. ones. <laughs> and for some reason, I don't know if they didn't want to. Maybe that was June and Nikki's decision. I don't know. But we didn't do those three that I remember. We started delving into new stuff. Nikki had new stuff. I had new stuff. You know, so it just, it moved forward. And that was the impetus at that moment in time. I think they just wanted to leave the past the past and go in a new direction. That's what they impressed upon me. When I got to LA, they were ready to take it. This hasn't worked. Let's move forward. That was what I got from them. That's really interesting. I don't think that's ever been explored before. Well, Well, yeah, because everybody says their perception of it, but that was the truth. They were completely complimentary, welcoming me and Brie, and really wanted to go in a new direction because it had not worked. They haven't broken through in four albums with complete support from Warner Brothers and touring and everything. And they were good. You know, they rocked on the stage. But it was a tough era for women. You know, I mean, that's part of it. You know, I don't know. 